Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. All these years, and we finally got our invitation to the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. It's episode 206 of the Data Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and I say that kind of because we are going to be talking about mermaids this week, specifically the new show Siren from Freeform Well of Aline Powell, who plays Rin on the show, who is the mermaid you're seeing on all the posters for the show and everything like that. We'll talk to her about the show. Got a chance to see it, and I'll give a little bit of my thoughts on the show, spoiler-free, of course, right after the interview, and I'll let you know what I thought about that. Plus, of course, going to have my spoiler-filled review of the Tomb Raider movie this week. What did I think about that? And so much more to talk about. Let's get to it. Up next, it's what we're reading on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is comic book writer Elliot Rahal. And Donna Kate. And you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Pull out your laptop, your tablet, or your long box, because whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading. And normally I try to do number one issues to kind of give you an idea of how a certain series is going to kick off. Going to do something a little bit different this week, and it's going to be all number two issues, starting with Deathbed number two from Vertigo, which is written by Joshua Williamson. Also, a big part of the story is Riley Rossimo, who's working on the art. Ivan Plancencia is going to be doing the colors, and Ron Bennett doing the letters. Now, this follows a writer named Val, who won an essay contest when she was younger, never quite got past it, so she, I guess you could say she peaked early, and her life kind of went crashing down from there. You know, never believed in herself sort of thing. Now she's been tasked to ghostwrite a novel for, and that's kind of what she does, the whole ghostwriting thing, telling other people's stories. That's one of the reasons that she's so upset. She's ghostwriting a novel for a man named Antonio Luna to tell the story of his life. Now, I will say I will be doing some spoilers from the first issue in this review since we're talking about second issue. So if you don't want issue once before, you just fast forward a little bit. We see in that first issue that Luna has these supernatural creatures that are after him, and now they basically want to kill everyone he's ever known because they want to kill his story. Now, I cannot stress enough how important Antonio Luna's story is to Antonio Luna himself. I have never seen a character that is more self-centered and just into telling his story. He wants the world to know his story so bad that it doesn't matter who else is involved in his life or has been involved or whatever. And we get into that with some of the people that we get introduced to from his life as the second issue goes on. You find out how much he only sees his story. You want to talk about the ultimate in tunnel vision. Antonio Luna has that. And then you bring in Val, who has been looking for that shot in the arm, you know, something to make her feel alive again. And that's kind of the reason that she decided to follow Antonio in the first place. And, I mean, to say that she tries to balance him out, I think is is being a little bit generous. I just think that she, she sees what we see as readers when we see Luna, and that's not necessarily a good thing. I'm not gonna say that Antonio Luna is an unlikable character. It's almost like he's unlikable in a way where you can't wait to see what he's going to do next or how far he's going to push it or if he might change. He's one of those characters where 
you have to see where he's going, even if you don't necessarily like who he is. And as you see the story step forward, and I like the progression from issue one to issue two. We get introduced to who he is, who Luna is, and how kind of out there he is, and and how and where his life has gone, and how important he thinks he is. And then in issue two, we start to you know peel the onion a little bit more. We find out a few more people that he worked with slash knew along his life and stuff like that. And now we're left at the end of this issue where there was someone that was fairly important to him in his life and he has a little bit of a realization and now we're going to go from there. And that kind of puts an interesting crossroads between Val and Luna's relationship. Now, I know that this is kind of a partnership and it's a very interesting one at that. But one of the things I love is that you still feel like Val could just walk at any time in this whole thing. And I know that that's not going to happen likely, but like when I was... When I talk about Tomb Raider later, I'll touch on this as well, where you know that this isn't going to be the outcome necessarily, but you still think it might happen. And that is that is a really, really tough thing to do in storytelling, and I think Williamson and Rossimo do that very, very well. I mean, Riley Rossimo, if you're a fan of his art anyway, you're going to love this book, and I am, especially action sequences. He seems to really, really get and any kind of like if there's a shouting match involved in a comic I, I know that's a weird thing to say for an artist he captures the that emotion of of, a, of like a shouting contest really really well for some reason and and hey i riley i promise that, that, that that's a compliment and i'm just a fan of joshua williamson's work at this point i think that this is a really interesting story and as you saw in the first issue we basically get narration from Val throughout this entire thing, and we get inside her head, and we get a lot of that. There's a lot more nar- narration in this book than you usually see in other comics, and I love it. It's almost my favorite part of the book, if the whole story about Luna wasn't so interesting. And you don't want him to be interesting because you don't want to feed his ego, even though he's a fictional character, but at the same time, you can't help but be interested and him and where this story is going to go and who we could possibly run into next. So this one's definitely a pull for me. Definitely going to keep reading Deathbed. Number two next issue going to be coming out, of course, in April. Let's jump into a number two issue from IDW now, and it's Spider King number two, which is written by Josh Van. Simone de Armini does the illustrations. Adrian Bloch on the colors and Nick J. Shaw is going to be on the letters. Now, as you saw in the first issue, again, some spoilers from the first issue. It actually follows... A, a, a guy named Rolf, and I say guy, he was younger when he took over as king of the Lexdale clan. The, his father, the king, died. He was very well respected, and Rolf was young, wasn't ready for the role, you know, kind of thing. So he was kind of thrust in there. And then you have Eric the Wolf, who is a family member, by the way. We find that in, in the first issue. And basically, Eric is the whole, I'm going to try to rule, rule the world kind of guy. I'm going to take over. I'm going to kill everybody that stands in my way, including my family, which includes you, Rolf. And Rolf is the kind of the misfit. You know, he's not really up to Eric's standards. The Lexdale clan would be slaughtered in a second by Eric's clan if they didn't have a meteor shower happen in issue one. This book is kind of interesting because it's like an alien invasion in the Middle Ages, you know, you've seen Middle Ages books before, you've seen Alien Invasion books before, but you don't really see the two combined very often. And one of the things I really love about this book is that it doesn't take itself too seriously. Like, there was an action sequence in issue one where the Lexdale clan fighters are going after Eric, the, the wolf's group, and they kind of smash into each other and kill each other. 
and everybody laughs. So I like that, that, yeah, there's a war going on. Yeah, there's some serious stuff going on, but at the same time, you're showing just how lopsided of a battle this is. It's David and Goliath to the nth degree, it seems like. But at the same time, there's a third element involved here, and that's this alien invasion, because they have their own agenda as well. As a matter of fact, again, in the first issue, you see the aliens kind of attack Eric and vice versa. And, you know, the alien's mortally wounded, but so is Eric as well. And now that's kind of continued in this second issue. And I don't really want to spoil what's going on there, but if you read the first issue, you kind of get the idea of where that might go. Now, you also see that Rolf and the Lexdales come across an alien craft as well. So we could see them in the second issue exploring that craft. And, and you know, it kind of gives them a little bit of a change in their perspective. That's kind of the only way. That's the only thing I'm going to tell you, with, and that's really all I can say without spoiling it. But is that really the case? We're going to find out. But then you have a third element in this, and that's Sigrid, who is of the Lombard clan. And she wants to save her people from Eric as well, so, and they don't seem to want to do anything, so she's like, screw it, I'll go do it myself. And she kind of sneaks out, and then now we kind of see, you know, how the how are these worlds going to collide? And we see her kind of inching closer to being a part of this larger picture. So could she be the key to the Lexdale clan? So we, could we see like a combining of clans type of thing to go after Eric? And the whole thing that's happening with Eric in issue two that I don't want to spoil... Is that going to make it even tougher? I, I mean, there's a lot of questions that are unanswered here, but there's just something about this book that I like. I can't put my finger on it. The The, the art's pretty good. It's not excellent, but it's pretty good. I, I actually think it's kind of fitting for this story. I, I like the way that they represent the Lexdale clan especially, but there's something just really charming about this book, and, and there's something that just interests me so much about this story that I can't quite turn away. It doesn't blow my doors off, but at the same time, it still makes me want to read it because I've kind of attached myself to these characters a little bit, and I want to see where this goes. So for that reason, I'm going to give this a pickup. I'll definitely give it one more issue, maybe two, maybe even into the fourth issue, to see where this goes because the story could certainly take a turn and it could be more interesting. And if there is a combining of clans, and I would very much be interested to see how Rolf and Sigrid actually interact together and how that would go if they decided to kind of partner up or do anything together at all. I think that would be very interesting and might actually develop both characters in different ways. So we'll see where that goes. That's going to do it for what we're reading this week. Up next, my spoiler-filled review of the Tomb Raider reboot movie is here on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is David Sobolov, voice of Grodd on The Flash and Drax on Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy. And you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It's time to set sail on yet another exploration. It is my spoiler-filled review of the 2018 Tomb Raider reboot, of course, with Alicia Vikander playing Lara Croft, who is searching for her father who's been missing for a decade and wants to know what happened to him. So she goes on an epic quest to an island called Yamatai, and that's where things kind of go awry. Now here, again, spoiler-filled review from here on out. So if you haven't seen the movie yet... This is something you're going to want to go ahead and skip ahead a little bit. But again, I'm not going to just like I do with every other review. I'm not going to go through every little beat of this movie. But I'll be honest. I actually put off recording this review for a while because I've been thinking about this movie ever since I saw it, like right when it came out. And I've really been going back and forth 
on a couple of things. Now, first of all, I, I want to talk about Laura Croft, and this might end up being a long conversation about one character before I get to the rest of the movie. And that's, look, we all have our preconceived notions about what who we think Laura Croft is or how she should be or how she should act and all of these different things, right? So whether it be from the original Tomb Raider games and the movies with Angelina Jolie, which, which I actually liked, and then you've got the Laura Croft from the new games, the new Tomb Raider games, who was excellent. I loved that first game so, so much. It's one of my favorites that I've played in a long, long time. So that's kind of what they're basing this movie off of, kind of. And I say that because this is a Lara Croft that is, you know, she's kind of, it's almost like she loses her father. She thinks she's lost her father, yet she doesn't want to let him go at the same time. And that's kind of led her down a different path. You know, she didn't go to college. I don't want to use the word screw up here because I don't think that that's, really covering it. I don't think that that's a fair thing to say, but she didn't follow the path in life that she probably would have followed had her father not left. So that's the best way I can think to really describe it. You know, she she didn't go to college. She's not the the explorer that her dad was and stuff like that. And, you know, she's, you know, training kickboxing gyms and she's doing MMA and, you know, she's writing for a courier service and, you know, she's the whole thing with the whole capture the fox thing. That was a fun scene. But at the same time, I'm watching all of these things and I'm going, this just doesn't feel like my Lara Croft. I mean, was she a strong character? Sure. And at a certain point in the movie, yeah, she flips that switch where you see points where she's really smart and she really knows what she's doing, especially when it comes to the explorations and just survival instincts and stuff like that. And you think, well, you know, if that's the case, why don't you portray her that way throughout? I just thought that the portrayal of her, and this has nothing to do with Alicia Vikander at all, and everything to do with how this movie was written and directed, is that it seems like it was such an up and down portrayal of her that there was no real consistency on what they wanted her to be. And that's just, that's just my opinion. And now I always thought that she was a strong character. I just wish that they were going to pick a lane with her. And I really think that as far as what they're basing her off of, I wish they would have gone a little bit more to the newer games to really model that character after. I mean, yeah, you're making her look like that character, and and it's a and there are some similarities there, but I I would have drawn more on that I think, and the grief stricken aspect I totally get that, but again not giving a first she's grief stricken and it allowed her to not do these things and then at the same time she won't let her father go so you know there's a double edged sword there I feel like if they would have picked one way or the other and again spoiler filled by the way if dad was dead. We found out Dad had died. Like we find out, Lou Ren, the the captain that took her to Yamatai. We find out, yes, his father was dead. They shot him right away. They kind of took care of that right away. But then you find out that Richard Croft is alive, and yeah, it's a heartwarming moment when they when they meet and all this stuff. And then you know how they have the back and forth about how she kind of screwed up, didn't follow his wishes, and they talk about how independent she is. But I feel like if Dad was dead. That gives her a different motivation, right? Maybe we see her get that motivation now that Dad does die at the end of the movie. Maybe she does that get that motivation now to follow in Dad's footsteps, and we get the Lara Croft that we're expecting in the next movies. But I'll get to that point here in just a second. I just wish that while we did see her go through hell in this movie, just like in the game, and there's physical situations where there's no way she should have gotten out of it, but at the last split second, she finds a way to get out of it. And there were moments where I thought, you know, 
she might not make it out of this. Even though you kind of know she's gonna, they gave us that thought that she might not. And that's kind of what I wanted. And we got in this movie several times, but at the same time, I, I don't feel like I got fully the Lara Croft that I was expecting in this movie. And we did get to see the puzzle solving and all that stuff. It's just, I was very back and forth on whether or not I actually liked the portrayal of Lara Croft from the writing and directing standpoint. I thought Alicia Vikander, as far as attitude wise, nails it. And there's those little bits where, you know, she's got that humorous, sarcastic side and we get to see her as the intelligent puzzle solver. We get to see her do some amazing things, make some amazing leaps, some amazing grabs. We get to see her just survive. But I would have liked to have seen that more. I wanted her to be on her own more in this movie like she was in the game. And I know she wasn't totally alone, especially in that first game. But I wanted her to have that those moments of being alone and, and having to camp for herself. Maybe even, you know, a, a, just a quick scene of having her try to hunt for food for herself and all of these other things while she's still trying to find this quest to stop the the, the bad guy, basically, in this movie and the, the group Trinity, who we find out is behind this whole thing, trying to find the power of Himiko, which is the basis, of, the basis of this entire movie. And I'm talking about Matthias Vogel, who's played by Walton Goggins. And again, that was another character where it was like, okay, so yeah, he wants to leave the island. And, you know, he's pretty upset that he still has to be there. And it's all the Croft's fault. I get that. But at the same time, it just felt like the reason he was doing these things kind of not very genuine, you know, just because you're being kind of held hostage on an island. I understand that. But at what point do you know what do you go? You know what? Screw this. You don't want to come get me. Fine. I'll just I'll just stay here. You want to see your family. I get that. But you don't really establish that, do you? They didn't really establish, you know, why? Obviously, everybody misses their family, right? I get that. But there were, I mean, even a two second flashback scene would have been nice. And, And normally I'm not a proponent of flashbacks, but you're not giving me a reason for that, you know, we saw what, maybe a two second picture of what we think is his family on a desk somewhere. And that's really all we have to go by. So you're not really giving your, your, who is your main villain much, you know, you're not giving him much motive other than, yeah, he's been on this Island for like seven years or 10 years or something like that. And he wants off. I get that. But at the same time, you'd like to, as a viewer, I want more that shows me how driven he is and how much of a family man he was. And maybe give him a human element as well. Make me kind of feel sorry for him a little bit in a certain way. That's something that, you know, a lot of movies do with villains and do it very, very well. So I just kind of feel like, you know, it just didn't feel quite genuine to me. And I really thought they rushed the relationship between Laura Croft and Lou Ren as well, who was played by Daniel Wu. Again, I thought Daniel Wu did a great job. It's just that... You know, there were a couple of moments with them on the boat and when, when they're sailing to Yamatai, and, and I get that, and I get that. I, I actually like the attitude that Lou Ren had, you know, kind of like the who cares. I dealt with this a long time ago, but yet, you know, he sees the picture of him and his dad, and he's like, ah, yeah, I want to find out what happened to dad, and I never did really let this go. See, that was a two-second thing that they could have done with Matthias that they did with Lou Ren, and I felt like, you know, okay, so you earned that, so you understand why he's going and the fact that he's getting paid. So at least you understand why he's willing to stick his neck out a little bit for two reasons. Maybe it's still not a good enough reason, considering where they're going. But hey, at least you understand why he's doing it. But I I feel like their relationship was rushed. Like he's like the whole, I'm not leaving without her thing. I, I mean, I get it. She's a human being. But I mean, they didn't really spend that much time together, did they? They couldn't have bonded that much in such a short time, could they? 
I don't know. Laura's pretty, pretty, uh, you know, she's very, you know, easygoing and, you know, she's very easy to go along with. But at the same time, I don't know that they could afford that kind of bond right away. I'm not saying he should ditch her and try to find a way off the island either, but just feels like a lot of stuff in this movie was a little bit rushed. But at the same time, there were also times where it, where it dragged a little bit. Now, I think I've kind of talked about a little bit of the negatives enough here. I will say that the positives were, I thought the action was legit. I mean, there were times where, again, when you thought she might not get out of it, and she did, those parts I loved. And, you know, even the fight scenes there at the end, I, I actually loved when they're in the, the Tomb of Himiko. And especially that final battle there, even though it was quick, I thought it was very impactful. When, you know, she shoves the finger in his mouth and, and slams, you know, it was, it was almost like The Rock with Nicolas Cage. When you know he shoves that that ball of the of the uh, the fissionable material in the guy's mouth and slams it, and you know he gets all you know he, he decomposes and and she shoves him down. It just it reminded me of that scene for some reason. I'm rambling a little bit, but you know the action scenes were good. I I did think that there was really good chemistry between Alicia Vikander and Dominic West, who played Lord Richard Croft. I thought that they had a really good chemistry. It really did feel like a strong bond, father-daughter relationship. That is a bond, especially with flashback scenes that they 100% sold on me. It was the bond between father and daughter. I thought that that was an excellent thing that they did. And I felt it. And when he died, yeah, I I, I welled up a little bit. Not gonna lie, it was it was a pretty emotional moment there. So, you you gave me that. And I kind of did like when they're trying to get Laura to give up on her on her dad, and you know make sure the company's run the way it needs to be, and you know the the, the house stays in the family name. And you bring in Anna Miller, who's her guardian, played by Kristen Scott Thomas. And then come to find out, it looks like she's probably connected or the one running the whole show with Trinity in the first place and how they're trying to get the power of Himiko or what they think is the power of Himiko from the tomb. And turns out it's a virus, which I'm not sure. They didn't really say if they knew it was a virus or not. They just wanted whatever power was in the tomb. But then you find out at the end that maybe Anna Miller is the one that's been pulling the strings for Trinity this entire time. And that's kind of where we're left with the whole thing. But I want to talk on on that just for a minute in that Another thing that I thought that this movie did that probably shouldn't have done was I felt like so much of this movie was a setup for a sequel or sequels. I feel like you take for granted that the movie's just going to succeed and you're automatically going to have a sequel. It's not like when you're when in sports like you pay a quarterback a certain amount of guaranteed money so you know okay you're going to have to pay this person 27 million dollars so you're not going to cut them. The next year, no matter how good or bad they do, you're going to be stuck with them. Well, it's not like you're stuck with a second Tomb Raider movie. You can't just take for granted that everyone's going to love it. It's going to make a ton of money, which it hasn't, and you're automatically going to get a sequel. So if you don't, then you end up with this open-ended thing, and that makes the movie a little more frustrating. I'm sure there will be a sequel. I would love to see a sequel. I want to see where this story's going to go. But at the same time, don't start planning for your sequel before you know how your first movie is going to do. Like, I don't feel like Wonder Woman planned for a sequel, and that movie is definitely going to be getting one, but I didn't feel at any point that that movie was planning for a sequel. And we pretty much knew there was going to be one, but it didn't look like they were going to be planning for it. I thought that Tomb Raider actually did that maybe a little bit too much in spots. But, I mean, there were also... the One of the things I did love especially with this being a video game adaptation. I didn't get it shoved in my face that, oh, look, that's right from the game. Oh, that's from the game. 
all that's from the game too. I mean, there were a couple moments where you where you saw things like, yeah, if you played the game, that that was a little wink and a nod right there. It was more of an Easter egg rather than a, well, we have to make sure we have this because if we don't, it's not going to feel like a Tomb Raider game movie. So I, I I love that they did not do that like a shot for shot type thing. There were little winks and nods here and there because I didn't want an exact version of the game on the screen anyway. Don't get me wrong. I say this whole, you know, this didn't feel like the same Lara Croft at times. I don't want the same exact version. And at one point I was like, look, you know, I need to let this go because this is their vision. This is that director's vision, the writer's vision on who they think Lara Croft is. This isn't going to be an exact representation of who we see in the game. And I get that. This was their take. They did something a little bit different, and I actually applaud them for that a little bit. And maybe it's my problem that I didn't feel like they they were kind of picking a lane on who the character wanted to be. Maybe that was the point, was that she was confused and she didn't even know who she was. She kept saying, I'm not that kind of Croft, but okay, then tell me what kind of Croft you are. And I'm not sure we got that. Or maybe that kept changing too. So that was my biggest kind of problem with the movie a little bit. But it was very charming. I liked it. I was entertained. It did drag on a little bit in parts, but I didn't think it was terrible. I thought the pawn shop scenes were very, very funny. I could actually watch probably a short, I hope maybe maybe in the DVD extras, we'll get some sort of a short or something just of the pawn shop and people that are coming in there. I would watch a web series of that or a couple of shorts of that. Absolutely. And I hope that that's a part of future movies should we be lucky enough to get those. So, I mean, this was definitely a movie that had a lot of great points. Do I think it breaks the video game movie curse? Not necessarily, but I feel like we're getting closer. I feel like we're moving the needle a little, a little bit because I didn't feel like this was one of those movies where I'm like, well, we definitely didn't need that. I just played the game. Now, granted, I think the story in that first Tomb Raider game that came out in 2013... When that game came out, that I thought was the perfect story, the perfect reintroduction of Lara Croft, and and that's why it stuck with me so much, was that I felt like when I played that game, I was like, yes, this is the story from Lara Croft that I always wanted. I'm not saying this is even the best, it was the best Tomb Raider game ever, but pretty darn close in my estimation, because I just thought it was so well done. And think about how long you have to work on these video games, and how many looks you get at these things in the coding process and in the editing process and you can change stories as you go a lot and you're getting a lot more looks at video games probably than you are at movies at times so you know being able to change things to make the story perfect might work out a little bit better in the video game realm and you get a more long form way to do that we're not going to watch 30 minutes of Lara exploring the island and going into these different places and finding different things because, you know, that's going to be boring. I mean, yeah, that might be fun in a video game setting, but I'll tell you what, when I'm playing Tomb Raider, I'm not going to every little friggin' ancient tomb and trying to solve the puzzle. That can be fun sometimes, but, you know, sometimes you just you just want to get to the next point in the game in the, in the story because you're excited about where the story's going. You don't necessarily need this, you know, this tangent off into a movie or a game. So I'm kind of glad that we didn't get a whole lot of that either. But I hope we get a little bit more of that in the next movie. And I hope it's not completely focused on the whole, oh, well, we've got to stop Trinity. Obviously, that's going to be part of it. But I hope we get a little bit more of the Explorer Lara Croft and a little bit more of a passion on that than we have before. So I'm going to go ahead. I think I've talked enough about the Tomb Raider movie. I'm going to go ahead and give my rating on this. Again, not a terrible movie, 
but not super great either. Definitely had its problems, but I think it's absolutely worth seeing if you haven't seen it yet. Definitely go see it and let me know what your opinion is on it. Tweet me at DownandNerdy757. Tweet the show on Twitter and let me know what you think. So I'm going to go ahead and give this seven leaking cans of paint on our bicycle out of ten. I was thinking about six and a half, maybe even six, but I think seven is fair for the Tomb Raider reboot. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of the Tomb Raider reboot. Up next, some nerd news to get to. We'll do it on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Riddle, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time to take a spin into an alien world with some very familiar faces, because it's time for nerd news. And the Men in Black spinoff just got very, very interesting. According to Variety, Tessa Thompson is going to be rejoining Chris Hemsworth for the movie from Sony that's going to be out on May the 17th, 2019. We have F. Gary Gray that's going to be directing, of course, who did Straight Out of Compton. And honestly, after seeing how these two were in Thor Ragnarok together, if you're Sony, why not do this? Why not see if you can capture that magic again in a different way? Because, I mean, they both proved in that movie that they could do action and comedy. We've seen Hemsworth do comedy before. We know that that's a big part of what Men in Black is going to be all about as well, combining the comedy with the sci-fi and action and, not again, not taking itself too seriously. Here's the problem, though. We know absolutely nothing about this story. And how closely are they going to be following the original movies? I mean, I'm sure there's going to be, you know, Easter eggs and certain stuff like that and maybe even mentions, but... Exactly where do you go with this? Because with alien stories, I think that it's 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 a very slippery slope now because there's so many of them that have been done and how aliens are portrayed both in both in lighter storytelling and darker storytelling as well. So now we have to see what direction that they want to head and, and exactly what new can you bring to the table? Because I'm not sure that even though the chemistry is great between Tessa Thompson and Chris Hemsworth, I'm not sure that that's quite enough to completely sell me on this spinoff working. I need, I don't even necessarily need a huge villain. I just need a story that makes sense or at least feels relatable. I I think almost feels relatable is more important than makes sense at this point because you have to bring an, an alien world into now our current world. And I don't want to see a bunch of aliens on Facebook and Twitter and stuff like that. No, that's not what I want to see. I don't want to take the social media trope again and apply it to aliens and let that be the spinoff. So hopefully they do something a little bit different. But with the team involved here, I think that I have some confidence that the Men in Black spinoff could actually work, even though that is a dangerous slope. I'm way more confident in that than a Matrix expanded universe that was talked about a little bit uh, late last week, so I, I would probably not do that, but this I'm, I'm definitely down for. And it looks like we are not done with Constantine by a long shot on Legends of Tomorrow. According to comicbook.com, pending the renewal for season four of Legends of Tomorrow, that Matt Ryan will bring Constantine in as a series regular on Legends of Tomorrow, starting with season four. Of course, you know, he's already been in a couple episodes this season. He will be a part of the finale and the whole thing with Battling Malice and, of course, Damian Dark and his daughter. Now, here's the deal. CW hasn't announced any renewals yet. And, I mean, there's a couple shows you know are going to be renewed. I mean, actually quite a few that you know for sure are going to get renewals. So it's not like no renewal announcement for Legends of Tomorrow yet is a really shocking thing. 
So, I, I mean, I understand, and even comicbook.com mentioned that in their story. It's not really shocking that has this hasn't been renewed yet. Now, he, let's look forward. Let's just say there's a season four, all of this happens. I think that, that Constantine, you almost would look at this from the outside and say, well, this doesn't make sense. It makes sense in the vacuum that we're in now, but, you know, making him a series regular, I'm not sure that, that makes sense. Well, look at the chemistry. Again, I just talked about chemistry between Tessa Thompson and Chris Hemsworth. Look at the chemistry with... Matt Ryan and Constantine and, and Sarah Lance and the rest of the crew of the Wave Rider and just how he kind of fits in there. And he's a misfit, too. Let's let's not, uh, you know, let's call a spade a spade here. He, he's been considered a misfit at times as well. But, you know, how much is John Constantine going to be John Constantine, right? You know, the guy that backs out of deals if it doesn't benefit him and will screw you over if necessary, that always seems to have his own agenda above everybody else's. But we have seen the softer side of John as well because of him caring for Damian Dark's daughter before he found out it was Damian Dark's daughter, not really being able to let that go at the same time. So we and even in the even in the Constantine series that was that was canceled, we saw a lighter side of him as well, and I'm sure that we'll see some of that in the animated series that's coming on on Saturday, March the 24th as well. But you can't help but think about the larger thing here of what does this mean exactly? Does this mean we're going to be getting another supernatural villain or a magic villain coming up in Season 4 of Legends of Tomorrow? I mean, could we be talking about the Demons 3, or do they not really want to go that route after this season? Could Nick Necro possibly be a, a, a possibility? Of course, you know, he's got ties to Constantine and Zatanna, kind of a mentor role there. Speaking of Zatanna, does this open the role for her at some point? I know that this is a huge cast already, and there might not be room for one more. I'm not even saying making her a series regular, but do we see her pop up? at some point, or some of the other Justice League Dark Clan. And I mean, I know that Constantine isn't completely just tied to Justice League Dark. I mean, there's a the Swamp Thing aspect. Could we see Swamp Thing at some point on Legends of Tomorrow or in the Arrowverse? There's just, you add Constantine and you kind of take for granted how many characters that could also add into the catalog here that don't necessarily need to be regular. So, I mean, you know me. Any Anytime we can get more Constantine... I'm going to be for it anyway, so let's do this regardless of what it means and see what happens, because I actually think this season of Legends of Tomorrow has won one of the best, if not the best so far. It seems like they've finally found their niche, and they are definitely getting it right, and I might actually get a chance to ask Matt Ryan about some of this, so uh, keep going to our Facebook pages and, and our social media page at Down and Nerdy 757 on Twitter, facebook.com slash Down and Nerdy and Down and Nerdy Podcast.com. There might be something special coming up this weekend or in the days to come, and it could very well be Constantine-related. I don't, I don't want to confirm it just yet, but just keep checking back. That much I can tell you. One more DC Comics thing I want to talk about before we get to our interview this week, and that's that DC is launching DC Boutique that is going to be for smaller conventions. Now, this according to Bleeding Cool. It's going to be engineered by Brian Powers of Number 6 Enterprises, and the DC Boutique will appear at 18 conventions across the U.S., U.K., and Canada this year. Now, they're going to be selling rare variants, and licensed DC merchandise. There's also going to be signings that are hosted there as well. And this is really going to be at cons where DC is not appearing with graffiti licensing. You know, you see that at larger cons, graffiti's there. They do a lot of the DC stuff there. Of course, I saw that in San Diego. So if graffiti's not going to be there, there's a chance that DC Boutique could be at a con, actually going to be debuting at Awesome Con 
on March the 30th because, you know, Scott Snyder is going to be there, Greg Capullo, Tom King, and a few others. So, and they're going to be selling some different variants there as well. So that's where it's kind of going to start. Now, you say smaller con. I would not describe Awesome Con as a smaller con, especially since it's in Washington, D.C., which is a major city. But at the same time, I love this idea. And it just shows that D.C. really, really gets it. And for a quote-unquote major publisher to do something like this, I mean, imagine going to you know my, my local con here where we're based in Virginia Beach is Tidewater Comic Con. If I saw the D.C. boutique... At Tidewater Comic Con, as an outsider, and Tidewater Comic Con has come very far in such a short amount of time, but it's still considered a smaller convention in the grand scheme of things. So, if you're an outsider wondering if you want to travel to Tidewater Comic Con or somebody that's never been before, and you see that the DC boutique is going to be there, that lends a bit of legitimacy to any convention, does it not? And it kind of takes it up to the next level. Now, I don't know if the DC boutique is going to be a Tidewater Comic Con or not, but that's just a local example that I'm giving for something that I would say is maybe a step back from Awesome Con, which is in Washington, D.C., and and hasn't been around for that long, for that matter. So if you see the D.C. boutique or the D.C. brand at a smaller con, you think, huh, well, they must really have it together. You know, if D.C.'s there, maybe I should go too. So I think this actually helps smaller conventions become bigger conventions. And I know that this benefits probably DC more than it does the convention itself, but it's pretty close to 50-50 because it not only gives DC a chance to directly sell things that they have to bring to fans themselves and kind of cut out the middleman sort of thing, but it also gives cons the chance to say, hey, DC Comics is going to be at our convention. So that's kind of a big deal. So I love this idea. I actually can't wait to see which cons... This is going to be a part of, really looking forward to see what's going to be happening with DC Boutique. It's going to do it for Nerd News this week. I know there are a couple trailers came out, but you know we've already talked about Deadpool. We've already talked about Cobra Kai. I'll give you more of my thoughts on social media and on our website as well. Because it's time to talk Siren. The new show from Freeform is going to be having their two-hour premiere on Thursday, March the 29th. It's time to talk to the Siren herself. It's Aline Power who plays Rin. She'll join me next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Wynn Everett, and I'm from Marvel's Agent Carter, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. One thing I can guarantee you is there won't be any singing crabs in this story because it's a very different take on a mermaid. It's Siren from Freeform, and we just happen to have Rin herself with us this week. It's Aline Powell. Aline, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. Now, there are plenty of little girls, Aline, that dream about being mermaids, but what is it like to do a very different take on the Siren story? I think it's even better. Um, you get to be a fierce, badass predator and do a lot of swimming in a tank in a, with a monofin. So, <laughs> best of both worlds. Absolutely. Now, one of the most important things for fans when they found out about the show was actually the mermaid look itself. So, how did you feel when you saw the transformation for the first time? Oh, I was shocked, but also super excited because as soon as they put those contact lenses in, I looked in the mirror and I just saw Rin. It helps so much, especially because those contacts give you kind of a tunnel vision. Like you can only see, you don't have uh, peripherals. So it helps a lot with the way she uh, looks around. She, you literally have to look around a lot in order, in order to see your um, surroundings. So that was uh, very cool. And then obviously... Um, Swimming with a monofin was amazing. 
but the biggest transformation is definitely the contacts. They make they make it look really awesome. I was going to ask you about that, actually, because there had to be a lot of challenges in playing this role. So how much of this was about body language and how to and how did you prepare for that? Well, it was everything, because when she first comes on land, she has never been on land. So she her her language, even though she's very intelligent, she can pick up things very quick. Mermaids have a very sophisticated set of language skills themselves, but there's still that initial um you know, lack of normal communication. So everything had to be done physically. But she's also not, you know, her face doesn't make the normal human expression. So how do you transfer how you feel when you can't use the normal expressions? Um, And that's where I looked a lot at um, animals and uh, both mammals on land and and in the sea, predator-wise, like, and a lot of it was um, like a cheetah or a leopard. Their eyes are amazing. The bigger you are in the sea, mammal-wise, the slower your movements, but then uh, you can have that very scatty, very nervous, quick, quick uh, movement as well. So I I played around with that a lot because I saw, you know, it's a mermaid. Who's seen one? Um, It's a blank canvas. So I just sort of watched a lot of Blue Blue Planet and, like, picked little things I liked and then put it all together. And it was was definitely a challenge here and there because I didn't want to, make her come across like a total nut job, but at the right. same time, she can't be just this elegant, almost like an AI sort of uh, look, neither. So I played around with those two, and there was Rin. There's something else that you do, and, and fans have seen it in the trailer as well. There's this hissing noise that Rin makes when she feels threatened. I mean, has that come in handy? You know, somebody cuts in line in front of you in Starbucks or something, you could just use that now? <laughs> Oh, totally. I'm just like, give me my latte. And then I just hiss. But it works better when I've got the contacts in. I don't even have to hiss. I just walk in and people, you know, leave the finish. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, that was really useful. And the exhale comes from, um, I love the, you know, when you look at whales or uh, orcas or dolphins, that exhale that's very sharp mm-hmm. or it can be very calm. And I love it. it was, I thought it was very expressive. And um, I listened to a lot of Bjork, and um, her accent, her Icelandic accent, um, actually uses a lot of, like, breathiness. And all sort of came from there. I, I love the, the play with breath as a communi- uh, form of communication, you know, depending whether it's sharp or calm or whatever, um, or even in her, when she finally learns English, uh, to play around with it. Definitely. Now, we know that the town of Bristol Cove has some deep mermaid legend and folk history, so how much is Rin actually aware of what's real to her and what's actually perceived by humans? She, she's definitely, um, I think, just as, uh, like in, in the show, Raina uh, Owen, who plays Helen, you know, tells about, you know, bloody history and all this stuff. I think the same has been passed down to mermaids, but their side of it, you know, watch out for humans. So there's definitely an element, uh, humans are a big no-no, um, hence her very defensive state of being when she arrives. It, it, it kind of, we both start learning about each other, humans about mermaids, mermaids about humans, and experiences are different and conclusions are made and um, the story unfolds.
We're talking to Aline Powell, who plays Rin on Siren. The two-hour premiere is going to be on March the 29th. That's a Thursday on Freeform. Now, Aline, since the name of the show is Siren, I'm sure fans are wondering how much we'll find out about the Mermaid Siren song. So without spoiling anything, how much is that going to play a role in this season? It's going to play a big role. It's just, I don't want to spoil anything. Uh, that, that says it all, if you ask me. I think that that's all we need to know on that. So now, well, speaking of songs, I mean, is there any song that you love so much that you'll just literally stop everything when you hear it? Oh, that's such a hard question, because I've, I've loved the songs. Okay, I'll just, oh yeah, okay. Queen, Bohemian Rhapsody, I don't care where I am. Yes. I will just go for the Bismilla, like the high opera thing. It is, I have no shame. I will go there in public. <laughs> so, so it doesn't matter where you are, in the middle of a crowded room, you're just going to belt it out and hit the high notes and everything. I once did it on a plane. It was June takeoff, wow. so it, was, uh, it wasn't as noticed. It wasn't noticed as much. Um, but yes, but still, I, I definitely can't help to um, help the boogie and the jiggling away on that. I think that's like an Instagram or a Twitter video waiting to happen, to be honest, Aline. Oh, God. <laughs> um, well, someone has to catch me out. <laughs> Somebody's going to capture it. It's, it's going to happen. I mean, if mermaids can get caught on film, yeah. this can get caught on film, too. Which, yeah. Exactly. Well, with so much being new and strange to Rin, I mean, we kind of touched on this a little bit. Let's go a little deeper here. How would you describe her trust level with the humans that she interacts with? When she starts out, zero. In the sea, she's used to being top dog, you know, so there's a confidence there. There's a... Hey, I, I can, if you, if you come too close, I'll, I'll take you out. But at the same time, she's in a new environment. She's, uh, she's in a new body almost. So she's, she definitely feels a disadvantage. So there's a nervousness there and a, a heightened, like, clumsiness even as well. Um, and so, but the problem is she simply has to rely on humans in order to uh, get what she wants, which is sister. She, uh, her sister gets uh, kidnapped. So, she has to find a way to trust someone on land. She makes mistakes, and sometimes she makes uh, good choices, but it's never quite um, as smooth going as a normal situation would go. One of the things I actually really liked about the show when I watched it was that it's not just a simple story about the siren and the mermaid itself. Did you like when you kind of read the script that this show went a little bit beyond that? Um, Absolutely. I mean, I think... It's sort of, um, you know, you, you don't just see one side of mermaids or, or it's a love story. As, I mean, as in, it's a love story. It's a, they just kill people or, a, you know, it, 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 it's not one of those things. They, they really explore deep the character journeys almost, um, even though they are mermaids. And all the, you know, the imagination and the mythical side that comes, those are the great settings, but it's, it goes deeper than that, and um, I really love it for that reason. Now, Liam, before I let you go, obviously you want fans to love the show and to keep watching throughout the entire season. Let's go a little bit deeper than that, though. Do you think that this show will actually help alter the perceptions of what we think mermaids might be? I think it will definitely open your mind a bit more to the possibilities that mermaids are, you know, real to a certain extent, because... Okay, they they won't be like Ariel and stuff like that, but there's there's an element of of realness to them, I'd say, that makes you 
makes you, I mean, made me wonder a little bit. I know it's still, you know, fantasy, whatever, but once you do your research and things, you're like, hmm, aquatic ancestor, why not? How could we, you know, how could we know the sea wipes out all, all the existence of species? And only a couple of years ago, we discovered Homo florensis, which is a new human species. That was a couple of years ago. And that's only because we found tiny bones somewhere, you know. So how would we know? I'm sorry, in a geek. So I don't know. Let your mind run free, you know. It's just it's a fun show. Enjoy. You can form your own opinions when you watch the two-hour season series premiere of Siren on March the 29th at 8 p.m. Eastern on Freeform. If you're not on the Eastern Time Zone, of course, check your local, local listings. And that's where you can see Rin. It's Aline Powell. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Thank you. So great to talk to Aline Powell about Siren on Freeform, which I got to tell you, a different take on a mermaid story. This definitely is that. I mean, yeah, there's a couple Disney references in the show, but it's freeform, so you kind of expect that. But again, with it being on freeform, I wasn't sure exactly what to expect. I mean, I didn't know if it was going to be love story heavy or if they were going to tone down maybe some of the violence or anything like that. I got to tell you, not toned down at all. I mean, maybe a little bit, but there's some stuff that happens in this show that I think will very, very much surprise you. So if you're dismissing this show because it's on Freeform, that is a huge mistake because Freeform's not only done some really good and heavy stuff, but this one, let me tell you, not only different for a mermaid story, but I think different for the Freeform network as well. Remember when Sci-Fi kind of made that shift and said, okay, we're going to be doing some really intense and serious stuff. I feel like Siren might be a little bit of a shift for Freeform and what we could see from the future. And we know we've got Marvel's Cloak and Dagger coming in June as well. So I think the future is definitely bright with Freeform, and Aline Powell is excellent as Rin in this show. There's a lot of intrigue with the people of Bristol Cove, especially one particular woman that runs a shop there. You'll find out more about her. Once the show starts, there's a lot more to her than meets the eye, and the family of the the main character as well, one of the main characters, definitely more than meets the eye there. And you kind of see the onion get peeled right away, in this two-hour premiere that's going to be happening at 8 o'clock on Freeform on Thursday, you're going to find out a lot about this show right away. They're not going to drag out certain things. But then there are certain things that you're going to see that they are going to be dragged out. So there's a little bit of long form, and there's a lot of answers that you get right away as well. So I think that that was the perfect mix. And I'm very intrigued to see the rest of this show. I'm really looking forward to see what they do with Siren in future episodes. And I know Aline Powell teased a little bit. That Siren song looks like it might be a big part of it, so I can't wait to see where that goes. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Aline Powell from Siren for coming on and everyone at Freeform for helping set that up. If you want more information on the show, go to downandnerdypodcast.com. That's where you can find a lot of past shows, a rundown of what's on this week's show as well. You want to buy the comics that we talked about, that you can do on our website. Also, follow on social media, facebook.com slash downandnerdy, at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram as well. But just remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.